Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Folks, we've got um, some challenging days, don't we? Um, <laughs> I'm not going to get into all of it today, but we are in the end times. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at that. And I think uh, some of this political stuff is just symptomatic of it. Just flat out. How else do you look at it? And I thank God that in the midst of it all, we know who's on the throne. Amen? And we know who's in charge. There's not anyone here or anywhere else that takes one breath without the permission of the Lord. He holds all things together by the word of his power. And so let's, let's as believers, not panic, <laughs> right? Let's point to Christ in everything, in what we do, what we say, in our attitudes, how we love one another. And certainly in the midst of our culture, boy, the opportunity to present Christ and to present hope is massive. Amen? I want to share with you a few things. There's uh, some threats to the church. I was uh, fishing one time. My uncle is one of the funniest human beings I've ever been around in my life. I wish uh, he got to meet Wayne at one point, but it was long, long ago, and but he's, he lives in New Jersey, Uncle Alan. And so, Alan, if you're listening to this, I love you. He is a piece of work. <laughs> he really is. And uh, my brother and I, we were in a rowboat. It was a smaller rowboat. And I was rowing, so I was in the middle. And Alan was at the front, and my brother was in the back. And we were on a small little lake up in Pennsylvania, Pocono Mountains. And uh, they, it was a man-made lake. I don't remember how many acres it was, but it's bigger than Fenton, you know. It had water in it, so, you know. (laughs) But anyway, the point is, is they had this one area where the water would go through this large concrete kind of a a sieve, and it would take all the stuff that would get caught up in the water, and it would keep it clean. And we were kind of fishing over that way, and uh, we were throwing our bait over by that little concrete area. And up in Pennsylvania, you, you really don't have normally huge spiders. And I, I saw this spider on this concrete slab, and, and I mean, it was shocking to me, okay? I know I was born in Africa, but I, I hadn't, I, it just, it was big. It was so big that I, I, I really pointed it out. I said, look at that spider, man. Look at that thing. That thing's huge. <laughs> and so Alan, <laughs> he's looking at it. It's like, man, look at that thing, you know? And so I had the oars, right? So I took one of my oars, and I thought, man, I want to see that thing move, right? I want to see that, I want to see that spot. I didn't know if it was alive. It was a fake thing. It looked kind of rubber. It didn't look real. So I took my oar, and I splashed. Well, I hit that thing perfect, right? Perfect splash, zipped over, hits the spider. It falls down into the water, and it got confused. And instead of trying to get back up on the concrete slab, it came right at our boat. (laughs) Now, I want to tell you something. Uh, (laughs) Three men in a small little rowboat with a spider that looked like Hercules coming at us was quite a moment. And my uncle... (laughs) Not a very reserved person. Literally stood up in the boat, 
grabs one of the oars and starts wailing at this thing because he thought, my goodness, it's going to come at us, right? It's going to get right into the boat. I don't know what he thought. I I don't know if he thought the rapture was going to happen or this spider was going to carry him off or what. But that spider was a threat. It was a threat, and it had to be dealt with accordingly. Folks, that's a silly little thing in order to talk about the threats to the church. But the truth of the matter is, is we've got quite a few of them. Inward and outward. In and out. And I want to take some time this morning and just kind of walk through that a little bit with you. Because I think when we talk about the epistles and we talk about what the Word of God has to say about our belief systems, how we believe, our activities, how we love one another, and all the different aspects of the Christian life. We need to be sober in the spirit. We need to understand that there are threats to the body of Christ, and some of them come from within, some of them come from without. This week, we're going to look at doctrinal threats, how we think, how we believe. What is it that we buy into that actually undercuts the very word of God, the very purpose, the very existence of why we're here, the testimony of the saints? And next week, we're going to look at false teachers, wolves from without, Some would argue wolves from within, false teachers. What do we do with that? This morning, let's look at dangerous doctrines. There's three, if you really want to think of it this way, there's three major threats, and I'm just going to put it in this category, but there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 John 2, verse 16 John says this, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from where? The world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world with its uh, system. The way we think, the way we view life, our pride and arrogance in the midst of so much. We can see that all over the place. And friends, we better be careful pointing the finger. Because we got three pointing right back at each and every one of us. There's the flesh, Galatians 5, 16 through 17, where Paul writes, I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And, and that's a beautiful promise, because the truth is you can't, you can't be walking by the Spirit and at the same time be walking according to the sinful flesh. You can't be walking according to sinful flesh and at the same time walking by the Spirit. They don't go together. You're either walking according to one or the other. And Paul lets us know in Romans there's a war going on between the spirit and my flesh all the time. There's a resistance of my flesh against the spirit and there's a resistance of the spirit against my flesh. And so learning to yield to the Lord, learning to die to self is part of what we're going through in terms of believers and just on a normal, regular, daily basis. He says, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. You may want to do what's right and good, but your flesh does not. Folks, Christianity is not a fixing of our flesh. It is the exchanged life where Christ literally comes to live within us in order to do through us what in and of our own strength we could never accomplish by ourselves. The world, the flesh, and obviously the devil. Ephesians 6.12, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And thank God they've all been placed under the authority of Christ himself. 
He's been placed far above all rule and authority. All the demonic powers have been placed under the authority of Christ himself. Praise God. We don't war against one another, folks. As soon as we start to do that, we're, we're already in the flesh. And we're in a wrong place. Our war is against the spiritual forces that would somehow try to convince us that we aren't what God has said that we are, that he's not what God has declared himself to be, and somehow that we're going to look at this world in a way that is not according to biblical truth. So we talk about spiritual threats, we talk about doctrinal threats, we're talking about belief systems, we're talking about systems of belief that would set themselves up against the knowledge of the Holy One. Things that we go through every day, perhaps, where we have certain attitudes, where we are incorrect in our understanding of who God has declared himself to be and who he's declared us to be and how we're to walk with him. And as a result, we diminish the testimony of the Lord. We diminish the glory of God. A biblical view of God and his view of us is essential to correctly view life, to correctly walk in life. If we're not allowing the word of God to shape us, change us, transform us, renew our minds, if we're not in the word of God so that the word of God begins to be received and then richly lived out in and through us as we learn to yield to the Lord Jesus Christ and his power and his strength, we will not see life with a correct perspective. First of all, there's the view of God. How do we view God? If we are to have a biblical view of the Lord and his view of us, of God and his view of us, in order to correctly walk, we better have a right view of God and what he has said about himself. I would suggest to you that from the very beginning, right, in the garden, that Satan was questioning the very word of God, the very motive of God. Did God really say? Did he really say? There's a motive issue here. The Lord's really not working all things together for good. The Lord's really not working for our benefit. That's what Satan would have us to believe. That's what the world system would have us to believe. That we need something else in order to have success or be considered successful. You can, you can fill in the blank any way you want it. But we better have a right view of God. And so there's... Several different things here. First of all, the person of Christ, the Lord Jesus himself, the God-man. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I, I want you to take note, every time the word was is used, he's talking about the eternality of God. He's not talking about something in the past. He's talking about God in his very essence being eternal. He was, he is, and he always will be. He is God. He was never created. He became a man. That's in verse 14. He entered into human history at a specific moment in time, at the right time. But in his essence, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is God. He was in the beginning with God. He's always been. He has always existed There's never a moment in time where the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has not existed. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come 
into being. He is the creator of all things. He's all-powerful. He doesn't have to do anything to get power. He is power. He's inherently powerful, and he's infinitely powerful, which means his power is never exhausted. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul speaks to it this way in verses 15 and following. He says he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ coming to this earth gives us a picture of the reality of who God really is. Why? Because he is God. But he enters time, he becomes a man, and we can observe him in time with a physical body. We get to see a picture of something that in and of our own selves we would never be able to understand or figure out. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So if we're going to learn to view life correctly, and then we've got to learn to understand what God has said about us, but we also better understand who God really is. And he's revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by coming to this earth and going to the cross, resurrecting from the dead. What do we believe about Jesus? Because that's a fundamental issue how we're going to live life, what we're going to think about other people. It's going to be a fundamental issue no matter what we do, no matter where we go, no matter how we act. It it impacts everything. And the threat is that we would diminish the deity of Christ. No question about it. People are trying to do that all the time. People are trying to do that all the time. Well, there's also the inerrancy of the Word of God. We looked at it earlier this year, but God's Word is inerrant. It's infallible. It is eternal. It is God's Word. And as a result, (laughs) we better know it. We better know it. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I love how Paul, writing to the Thessalonian believers, he says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. What a beautiful truth. Do we really believe this is the word of God? Do we really believe that the word of God has authority over our lives? Do we believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that this is his word? And as a result, he has a right to tell us how to live, how we shouldn't live, how we ought to live. And praise God for his grace that he's come to live within us in order to strengthen us, in order to live in the way that he commands us to live. It's not out of my own effort or own strength. It's because Christ has come to live within me, within the believer, that we have the ability in him to walk according to what he has told us to do. But what do we believe about the word of God? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What are the origins of the word of God? Are they in man? Absolutely not. They're in God. It is God's word. And men were moved 
by the Holy Spirit. That picture is a beautiful one. It's that of a small little boat getting taken downstream by a river that is in control of the boat. These men were not in control in the sense that they were not dictating to God. They were not coming up with their own thoughts. They were moved by the Holy Spirit in order to write Scripture, the Word of God. It is God's Word. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the last letter that Paul writes, in verses 16 through 17, he says, All Scripture is inspired, meaning breathed by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What do we believe about the Word of God? What do we believe about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? What's our view of God? If we don't have a right view of God, we will not have a right view of ourselves. We will not have a right view of life. Thirdly, what does the Lord say about salvation? What's our view of God in terms of salvation? Acts chapter 15, such a beautiful passage in this because the early church went through this very difficult moment where they actually called a special council in Jerusalem. And Paul went down to Jerusalem in order to talk to James and the other elders and apostles. Peter was there in order to make sure that the early church landed in the right place. There was a threat to the early church and to believers as well as to unbelievers. And it was the threat that somehow grace was going to be added to and or taken away from. You had a group of people that said you can't get saved unless you keep the law. And then there were other people who had already been saved that once they got down to Jerusalem said that, well, okay, we'll give it to you. You're saved. But now that you're saved, you must keep the law. And so in the midst of this, it was confusing. Gentile believers were being placed under the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was not given in order to keep, to climb some spiritual ladder so that we could get to heaven. The law was given in order to reveal sin and the need of a savior. And so Peter makes it very clear. Why are we going to put this burden, this yoke on these individuals when we ourselves and our forefathers haven't even been able to bear that burden? And I love how Peter ends up in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are, meaning the Gentiles. Not only coming to Christ is by grace, but walking in Christ is by grace. Praise God. It is by grace. It is not out of works. It is not out of our own effort and or sincerity. When we understand who God is, we begin to understand who Jesus Christ is. We we begin to understand the uh, authority, the inerrancy of the word of God we begin to understand salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of works. And as a result, it ought to change. Not only what we believe, it ought to change the way we live, how we relate to the Lord in the midst of life. Grace is not simply that which brings us to the cross in the sense of phase one, if you want to put it that way, or justification, just as if I had never sinned, that moment in time when I become a believer, and enter in to the kingdom of God, become a child of God. It is by grace, it is through faith, it is not by works, but we also live by that grace. We stand in that grace. 
Galatians 2.21, Paul speaks to this. He's so angry with the Galatian believers because they've placed themselves up under law as if somehow they could now keep it as believers. And he says this to him, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. I don't set aside the grace of God now that I've come to know Christ and I'm a believer in Christ and, and I am a Christian, if you want to think of it that way. I don't set aside the grace of God. I walk in it. Because if I could produce righteousness, then why did the Lord Jesus Christ go to the cross? The reality is I can't produce righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. And as a result, I walk with him in the midst of life. The threat to believers is that somehow we are saved by grace, but then we are to walk according to our efforts, to walk according to the law, according to what we consider to be good and right. Folks, we walk by grace. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. I love how Paul writes this to Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, meaning the opportunity to be saved to everybody. But he doesn't just stop there, because in verse 12 he goes on, he says, Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Not only is it the salvation of God in the sense of coming to Christ, coming to the cross, coming into the kingdom of God, not by our own strength or power, but rather because of what Christ has done for us and believing in him with the promise that we shall be saved, but we also now walk in it because the grace of God begins to instruct us how we ought to walk, how we should not walk. And praise God that the grace of God is Christ himself within us that empowers us, that when we begin to say yes to him, he begins to work in such a way to transform us and then empower us to walk in the righteousness that he has for us. Second Peter 3.18, again referring to believers, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in it. <laughs> Don't stagnate in it. Don't just keep looking back at the past. Experience God today and every moment of every day. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think one of the great threats to the body of believers is that somehow we're constantly looking back at that point in time when we entered into the kingdom, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we received from him the promise that we will inherit eternal life. And we stop there. No, friend, now we get to walk in it. Now we get to experience God day by day, moment by moment, to be transformed by him, to be renewed in our minds and the way that we think and what we believe. And as a result, we get to experience the power of God, not only transforming us, but being revealed, manifested in and through us. Do you realize that every one of Paul's letters conclude with grace being highlighted? Every one of them. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or in Romans 6, 20, 16, 20, says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Look it up. Every single epistle that he writes, he concludes in one way, shape, or form by highlighting the grace of God. Why? Because believers need God's grace. Revelation twenty two twenty one, the very last statement in the Bible, 
says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Wow. You think grace isn't important? I think one of the great threats is how we twist and try to redefine into our own thinking what grace really is. We minimize grace at some point in time to where it's just for the person who's an unbeliever to get saved and become a believer. And now as believers, how do we define grace? See, we need grace just as much as anybody else. We've just entered into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're now his children, and we get to experience God's grace in new and fresh moments as we walk through life, as he seeks to transform us and to renew us. Well, a view of God is essential, right? And a wrong view of God becomes a deep threat to the body of Christ. But I would suggest a wrong view of God leads to a wrong view of self. It's a wrong understanding of our purpose and so much more. First of all, it threatens what we believe are about our identity in Christ. Colossians 3.3 says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Period. Love it. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've received him for who he truly is and you've asked him to forgive you and you have believed in him for what he has done, what he alone is able to do, then the promise is unequivocal. It is that you will be saved. And guess what? My identity is now in Christ. My identity is in Christ. My life is hidden with Christ in God. How many people are running around insecure about who they are in Christ, trying to use works, trying to use all their efforts in order to substantiate somehow, some way that they were sincere way back when, when they prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of moving on from that foundation, as the writer of Hebrews says, and recognizing that I am a child of the King and that the Lord loves me unconditionally. I can't do anything to get... God to love me more and I can't do anything to make God love me less. It's unconditional. Friend, that ought to change our lives. That ought to change the way we live. We don't have to. We get to. And that's a privilege. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, he says, by, do, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. <laughs> do we take credit for this? Absolutely not. Do we take credit for who we are in Christ? No, we, we boast in the Lord. We say, Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. Not only does a right view of God begin to impact what he has said about us in terms of our identity, but also our walk. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. If you can figure it out, we probably got to take 10 steps back and say, was that really by faith? Because faith is the persuasion that God is able in spite of my inability. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did we receive him? By works? Did I do something to earn it? Did I do something in order to get God's attention? And he, oh, Eric's such good. Man, I love that kid. All right, come on, Eric, you can be my child. <laughs> no, it's by grace. I didn't do anything to deserve it. Who do we boast in? We boast in the Lord. 
He says, as you've received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Or Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. How do I live it? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up. For me, how do, how do believers walk? We understand who we are in Christ. Now we begin to learn how to walk with him, how to walk in our lives by faith, the recognition that he's at work all around me, the recognition that he will bring good out of all of my circumstances, even if those circumstances aren't good, the recognition that he loves me unconditionally, the recognition that he lives in me to empower me to do the very thing that he commands me to do. See, the threat to the body is that we somehow don't have a right understanding of God and his word, but also have his salvation. And clearly, as a result of that, we don't have a right understanding of who we are in Christ. And so somehow, some, we've got to do something in order to prove ourselves worthy to God. Friend, get off that, get off that boat. Because you're under threat. You're under duress. God loves you unconditionally. Well, what about our hope? When we begin to understand what God has said about us and we understand that God keeps his promises, that he's faithful, that he's true, Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, what? The hope of glory. Wow. The assurance of that which is to come. See, I can live day by day recognizing that no matter what happens in my life, no matter what goes on, no matter who comes against me, whatever the circumstance may be, friend, we can walk through those situations and those circumstances and those difficulties knowing that we are beloved of God. And as a result of that, in the midst of it, we can have perfect peace. We can have perfect joy. We can actually love our enemies. Why? Because Christ lives in me to transform me, to renew my mind, in order that through me, his life and who he is will begin to be revealed. But I can walk this life and I know where I'm headed. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to try to be good enough to to make sure that I earn it. I know because God said it and that settles it. Right? Amen. What happens when we get our eyes off of that? We lose focus. We lose focus. And we lose focus quick, don't we? We lose focus quick. Revelation 2.4, the Ephesian believers were chastised, rebuked by the Lord. He commended them for doing all kinds of good stuff. You do all kinds of good stuff. All the activities are so good, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. Wow, are we so caught up in the activity that we have forgotten our view of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and and the word of God and the declaration of salvation by grace through faith. And, And as a result of that, we get all caught up in all kinds of activities that may be good activities. They may even be biblical activities, but we are doing it for the wrong reasons. And in the midst of it, we have forgotten that the Lord is our first love, that we are to love him, to follow him, to walk with him, to celebrate him, that he's the one that empowers us. He's the one that strengthens us. He's our love. 
See, Stephanie's gone for, my wife is gone for three weeks. So I'm week one down. <laughs> Heaven help me. <laughs> I love my wife. She's my best friend. And uh, she's with mom. They're having a good time. Stephen and their family and everything. Jonathan and I have been batching it. We've had a good time. And by the way, we had a, well, I watched the Vols game and came in and got to tell Jonathan all about it. If you didn't watch the Vols game, something's wrong with you. You need to get a life. You know, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're watching Dallas today, so <laughs> three and one, <laughs> three and one. <laughs> oh, Lord, help us, right? But what happens when you're gone from somebody that you love? What happens? See, what happens when you begin to just miss them and you're going through all the activity, but something doesn't, just doesn't seem right. Have we left our first love? Are we so involved in church that we've forgotten to be the church? And the divine power for the church is not in our activity. It is in Christ himself. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk according to the power of God. Not our own power, not our own sincerity. Well, all of these things begin to impact our view of life if they are not corrected by the Word of God, if the Holy Spirit using the Word of God in us does not begin to correct us, admonish us, tell us where we're wrong, give us the opportunity to make it right, to confess to Him, to agree with Him that we have sinned and that we can be restored into a right fellowship. We never have to worry uh, once we're in Christ of losing our salvation, our eternal salvation. What we need to be concerned about is are we in fellowship with him? That's the issue. How do all these things begin to impact our view of life? Well, when we have a wrong view of our strength and what God has demanded or commanded us to do and take out the key moment here, which is that Christ is in me to accomplish this through me. And what happens? We begin to walk by our own righteous standards. And what happens with that? Oh, we hate this word, don't we? Legalism shows up. Now, folks, understand something. There's a difference between legalism and accountability. There's a difference between legalism and accountability. We need accountability. But legalism is where we, in effect, say that my relationship with the Lord is conditioned upon whether or not I am doing for him, out of my own strength and my own power, what it is that he demands me to do. Legalism is where I earn God's favor. Grace is unmerited favor. It is undeserved favor. It is God lavishing himself upon me in spite of me, something that I could never earn, nor can I pay him back for. And we get that wrong, folks, and that is a serious threat to the body of Christ, to the church, to believers. Because then all we're doing is role modeling religion to the world. And I can tell you, there's enough religion out there already. Galatians 3, 2, he says, Paul writing to the Galatians, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He goes on, he says, are you now being perfected by the works of the law? 
As an unbeliever, you didn't come to know Christ and you weren't found in Christ. You weren't saved. You weren't born again. You weren't justified. You didn't become a child of God because of anything that you did. The law simply revealed to you what you're not and your need of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation. Now, as believers, are you placing yourself back up under the very system, the very tutor that taught you in the first place that you needed Christ? Is this by hearing, by faith, or is this by effort, by works? Clearly, it's hearing by faith. James 4, 6 James, in writing, he says, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who are the humble? The humble are the ones that realize, I can't do this. God never said I could. He can. He always said he would. And we're not talking about inactivity at that point. We're not talking about a lack of effort at that point. We're talking about a fundamental understanding that it is God in me. It is not me. It is the Lord who's able to change me, to renew my mind, and empower me to do the very thing that he commands me to do. It is not out of my own effort, my own strength, that this can take place. It is by the strength of God, which Paul prays that you would be strengthened in the inner man by the strength which is in Christ Jesus. What else do we get wrong? Boy, materialism becomes a focus, doesn't it? We have a world focus on the material, the material. Luke 16, verse 13, makes the statement, you cannot serve God in wealth. <laughs> better choose, better choose. You're going you're gonna to live your life for something that's perishing, you're going to live your life for something that's imperishable. What are we going to do? That's the reality of it is, right? What are we living for? To build our kingdoms on this earth or an eternal kingdom, which is God's. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, Paul tells Timothy, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Spiritual life. True life. Let me just throw a couple isms at you. Because these are threats to the body. You may have thought through this. This may be completely new to you. Have you heard of deism? Right? Deism. God created everything. There's some supreme being out there who kind of wound up the whole universe like a clock. And now it's just ticking away. Natural order. Natural law. And so in the midst of it, we're just supposed to do our best. That's kind of the long and short of it. Folks, I I really believe that Christians are suffering from this immensely. You say, well, I, I believe God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. What we've done is we've divorced ourselves as believers from the very power, the strength of God himself in order to do the very things that he's told us to do. And so we've got this kind of a strange Christian deism going on. Well, God just told us to go ahead and make disciples, so I don't even have to pray about it. I'm just going to go do it with anybody and everybody, and no matter what the circumstance. I mean, where's the following of the, of the Lord? Where's the power of the Holy Spirit? Where's the leading of God in the midst of that? 
We, we take these biblical standards and statements and somehow we divorce God out of the midst of it as if it's placed upon us in order to perform. And folks, when we do that, it's a direct result because we have misinterpreted grace. We have misunderstood the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We have a wrong view of God and our relationship to him. Always, always, it's in the power and the sufficiency of Christ in us the Holy Spirit himself who empowers us to do the very things that he's commanded us to do. I see it all the time. I hear it all the time. I hear it in the music all the time. Not here. I'm talking about the radio. I'm talking about all over the place. I can't tell you how many emails I get every week about how to build the church. How can you build the church? And I'm thinking, what? Do we want the kingdom to expand? I hope so. Who said that he would build his church? So just use this formula. Have this seminar. Have this great personality come in as a speaker. And you automatically will see this, this, and this, and this take place. Baby bathwater. Not throwing programs out, not throwing powerful speakers out, not throwing certain things that ought to be done out. But fundamentally, if we don't understand that it is by Christ's power and his power alone that the church is built, then we need to be corrected. There's another one that's kind of odd, and it's Gnosticism. You say, well, that was way back when, way back when. Oh, well, some of the New Testament, the epistles themselves were written. Gnosticism is simply a belief that knowledge was king. All matter is evil. And it actually ended up being where they basically said Jesus, uh, because he is material, because he had a body, is evil, but he was indwelt. The body of Jesus was indwelt by God. And so you get all kinds of strange kind of belief systems out of this. Long story short, the bottom line is that we can come to church on Sunday morning and we can listen to the word of God and we can say, oh, we believe that and then go live whatever way we want because we can't help it. Because matter is evil. That, friend, is a threat. We see it in the political systems. We see it in leadership. We see it all the time. People somehow have this idea and this understanding, and we're all susceptible to it because we all have flesh. But the reality of it is the idea that somehow I can go live whatever way I want because I just can't help it. Friend, that is a wrong view of Christ. That is a wrong view of his spirit within us. That is a wrong view of the power of God enabling us to be changed and strengthened and renewed in the way that we think. It is a threat to the way that we walk with our Lord and to the testimony that we have for him. Colossians 1, 9 through 10, Paul speaks to this. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Long story short, what he's simply saying is that you would grow in the knowledge of God, but that it would actually transform you to the point of activity. In other words, you don't want to divorce 
the activity from your beliefs. And you don't want to just simply have a bunch of beliefs that you say you believe, but then it never actually transforms you to the point where it is seen in and through your life. All believers should be growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, being transformed in our minds, therefore transformed in our activity. That should be happening. No question about it. And lastly, one of the great threats, I believe, is cultural relevancy. Cultural relevancy, being relevant. I hear this all the time with the millennials. Well, we, we got to understand them, and they, we got to figure them out, and they just have a different way of thinking about things. And, well, some of, those, some of those things are true, no question. I like to think of it, my grandfather who went on to be with the Lord, and my son, Jonathan. If you sat my grandfather down and you said, hey, granddad, what do you want to sing? He would say, oh, let's get the hymn book and let's go over to the organ. Right? My grandmother could play the organ. (laughs) He was a pastor. She was, you know, the organist. That's the way it worked. And so he would play how great it Art thou, and all the different wonderful hymns, and do it on the organ, and we'd have a great old hymn sing. Now, if I asked Jonathan, Jonathan, what do you want to do? He says, give me the USB, and let me plug it into the car, and I got all kinds of cool stuff right here, man. Let me tell you something. They ain't an organ in sight. (laughs) And I kind of go amen to that. I'm sorry. My grandmother played the organ, but I don't know. I'm in the middle. (laughs) Cultural relevancy. I'm not saying we check our brains at the door, folks. I'm not saying we don't understand generations and the way they think, and we don't understand where they're at, and we understand their context. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is if we make cultural relevancy the number one primary way of reaching people, I think we've created an idol, and we better be real careful about that because the Lord knows how to reach this millennial generation better than anybody here, better than any Harvard statistics, better than anybody. That's the reality of it. Folks, we need the Lord. We need Christ. We need his grace. We need his sufficiency. How we think about God will impact the way we view what he says about us, which will impact the way that we walk on this earth and the way that we walk in the midst of our circumstances and life. I'll take a moment and just go before the Lord in prayer. We're going to take a time for communion, to remember what Christ did for us at the cross is transformational. It's amazing what God did for us. How are we walking with him? How are we walking according to his strength, his way? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.